Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 7. We're continuing in our series in this gospel, and we're right in the middle of a controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees over the nature of the law and of righteousness and purity before God. Now, if you were not with us last Sunday, reminder of the context of this controversy, the context was a little dinner that Jesus and his disciples were having with the scribes and the Pharisees. And while at dinner, the Pharisees charged Jesus with breaking the traditions of the elders by ignoring ritual hand-washing before eating. And the Pharisees' charge is really very simple. The charge is this, Jesus, you are allowing your disciples to ignore the guidelines that our elders have given and established to protect our purity and holiness before the Lord. The Lord. It's a serious charge, but it gave Jesus the opportunity to confront the Pharisees over the pro- their approach to the law. You may remember that Jesus had told his disciples that if they wanted to enter the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness was going to have to be greater than that of the Pharisees. And this would have been a bit shocking since the Pharisees were the ones who were dedicated to the law. They were the experts at keeping the law. But last week, we saw the first reason for why their righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And it was this, the Pharisees' righteousness was not righteousness at all. It was based on the traditions of the elders instead of God's law, and following their traditions actually led them to break God's law. And that was the first reason that we saw last week. But having confronted the Pharisees directly, Jesus now turns to the crowds and identifies the second flaw with the Pharisees' approach to righteousness. And we want to read it together from God's Word, Mark 7, verses 14 to 23. Follow along as we read God's Word. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he'd entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Father, we thank you for your word, and we do ask that you would work in our hearts. Apply this to us by your Spirit, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you are a fan of movies, 
You know that over the last 20 years, we have seen an almost continuous flow of superhero movies filling the theaters. We've had Marvel movies in DC Comics. We've had the old standbys and some unique superheroes. We've had fantastic films that moved me deeply. And we've had terrible flops that wasted two hours of my life. But one of my favorites is now almost 20 years old. Batman Begins, directed by Christopher Nolan. And in the film, Bruce Wayne is trying to hide his new identity as Batman, and so he's living as a spoiled, wealthy pleasure seeker. And as he goes about his life, he runs into his childhood friend, Rachel Dawes, and she scorns him for this apparent irresponsible and purposeless life that he is living. Now, Bruce protests. He says, that's not who I am underneath. And Rachel responds by saying, it's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. Now, it's a pointed challenge that has to do with Bruce's integrity. But if we were going to have to examine it theologically in light of Jesus' statement, it would need a tweak. Because as Jesus explains to the crowd, the second reason why our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is that their righteousness is entirely based on fulfilling a checklist of external actions. Whereas our righteousness or our defilement depends upon what is underneath or inside of us. And so to tweak Rachel's statement, I think Jesus' point in this passage is this. It is who we are underneath. It is who we are inside of us that determines what we do and how we stand before God. That's Jesus' main point. Who we are inside, underneath, determines what we do and how we stand before God. And as Jesus makes this point, he explains two things. First, why things that are outside of us do not defile us, and then why things inside of us do defile us. And we want to look at both of these this morning. So we begin with Jesus' first point, that ritual uncleanness, things outside of us, do not defile a person. And you notice that Jesus states this principle in verses 14 and 15, appealing to the crowd to hear him, to listen carefully and understand what he is saying. We don't know if any in the crowd or how many understood Jesus, what what Jesus was saying, but it's, it's clear that the disciples did not understand because later in private they ask him what he meant. And so Jesus explains further in verses 18 and 19. As Jesus puts it, sin is what defiles you before God and bars you from his presence. And sin comes from within in the heart of a man. The Pharisees thought that the food you ate and whether you had washed your hands properly defiled you or made you righteous before God. But food and unclean things and all these things on the outside, Jesus says, they go into your mouth, they go down your throat, through your stomach and out the other end, and they never touch your heart at all. So how can they possibly defile you before God? Now the point's really simple enough, but it was confusing to the disciples. Because Jesus' statement is a change from a portion of the Old Testament. And Mark notes it. He says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. That was a change from the the Levitical law. 
And so as the disciples stand there, they're thinking back to Leviticus. And if you would turn back to Leviticus, what you'd find is that two of the three longest chapters in Leviticus talk about how things outside of us defile us or make us unclean. Food laws, a a person uh, becomes defiled or unclean before God if they eat winged insects or or animals without a parted hoof or, or reptiles. Or, or you think of a, a person or a home is made unclean by mold or rashes or, or leprosy. In other words, it sure think that you can see the disciples saying it sure seems Jesus like things outside of one do defile you. So, is Jesus contradicting God's word? Was the Old Testament wrong and off base, missing the point that Jesus was saying? Well, not at all, because. The Old Testament repeatedly made it clear that all of these ceremonial laws and sacrifices and regulations were always about the heart in the first place. Israel was to express their love for God and their purity before God through the laws and regulations he gave them. In fact, if you think back to Leviticus, what is the refrain that comes after the lists of regulations at the end of many, if not most, of the chapters? It is, for you shall be holy, for I am holy. It is an appeal to our character before the Lord. Maybe you think of circumcision. Circumcision also was an external ceremony on the one hand, but in Deuteronomy 10.16, God made it clear that his desire was a desire for Israel's hearts. Circumcise your hearts and cease to be stubborn before me. Or how about the sacrificial system? That involved the shedding of blood and the external sprinkling of blood upon a person. But we could go all through the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 15, Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, Isaiah chapter 1, Hosea 6, 6. We could keep coming up examples of, of God declaring that what he delights in is not the sacrifices in themselves, but in mercy obedience and the knowledge of him. See, all of this was about Israel's heart before God. And the problem was that the Pharisees kept the checklist of regulations, but missed the whole point of love and holiness before the Lord. That had been the point all along. And so Jesus is only emphasizing again what God had emphasized through the whole Testament. It is our inside, the heart of a man, that the Lord is most concerned about. But in addition, we'd have to add that while Jesus does set aside some of the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament, Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 explains that these works of the law were meant to be a teacher or a guardian, a, a tutor for God's people until Christ came. They emphasized the need for blood to be shed for sin. They emphasized the need for God's people to set themselves apart from the nations and to be pure before a holy God as they waited for the promise to be fulfilled through them for the blessing of the world. But when Christ came, it was only natural and right for the preparatory and the temporary to pass away while the essence of the matter the heart of a person before the Lord would remain. So Jesus is not at all undermining the Old Testament. His statement might have seemed radical, perhaps even confusing to his disciples, but he is merely repeating what had been true all along, even if some of the details have changed with his arrival. And that is that nothing outside of a person can defile one. 
It is what is inside of us. And as a result, to focus all of your efforts of righteousness on external actions and regulations as the Pharisees did was to miss the whole point of the law in the first place and also to miss the central issue between God and man. And so this is the second reason why our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. True righteousness comes from the heart. It is not just a matter of external obedience. But if defilement and righteousness was not a matter of contact with things on the outside of a person, maybe the question is, well, does that mean everything's good between God and man now? God's not concerned with whether we eat shellfish or wear cloth that's mixed, so can we rest easy now? Well, far from it, because Jesus' second point is that sin, which comes from inside of a person, does defile us before God and separate us from him. And Jesus explains this in verses 20 through 23. You see Jesus state the root of the issue in verse 21. All evil thoughts and actions come from within, out of the heart of man. And it is these things coming from within us that defile us. Now I think Jesus gives us the perfect analogy to understand what he's saying here in Matthew chapter 23. He was talking to the Pharisees then again, and to borrow that analogy, imagine that I came to you and handed you a cup with, a gla- with water in it, and you're thirsty and you wanted a drink of water, and I say, now I have meticulously and carefully cleaned every square speck of the outside of this cup here you go. But of course, inside, I haven't paid any attention to the mud and the gravel on the inside of the cup. Well, what's going to happen? Well, that water is not safe to drink. And not only is the water not safe to drink, but as it sloshes out, it's just going to get the outside of the cup dirty again. But of course, if I've put the effort on cleaning the inside of the cup and I hand you that cup of water, you say, this water is safe to drink, and not only is it safe to drink, it will be a source of cleaning the outside, should it get dirty. And this is the point that Jesus is making, just so, what is inside of us defiles us or produces righteousness before God, not what is on the outside. And that's the principle, but having stated the principle, Jesus goes on to give us more detail of what a defiled heart looks like in real life. What does this look like? Well, he gives us 13 examples of sin that defile a person before God. Now, this is not just a random list. It's a carefully crafted list. 13 items beginning with evil thoughts, followed by six actions, and then six attitudes. Evil thoughts begin the list. And evil thoughts are those ideas or those desires that spring from our heart and then suggest wicked actions or attitudes or responses to our mind. You know those promptings that come up from within us, those evil thoughts that suggest these sins. And then after the evil thoughts, which Jesus begins with, he lists six sins which are plural in the Greek. And the fact that they're plural in the Greek indicates that they are actions that are committed. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, and wickedness. Six wicked actions. And then Jesus lists six sins which are singular in the Greek which indicate an attitude or state of mind. Deceit, sensuality or lust, 
envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These sins, Jesus says, spring from within us, and they are what defile a person before God. Now, I think you can hear an echo of Jesus' statement here in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. There, James writes, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and then sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see the, the pattern, our desire leads to sin, which leads to death. And I think you hear the same from Jesus here. Evil thoughts spring from within, leading us to sinful actions and attitudes, which therefore defile us before God. Now, as we think about this, the root of sin coming from within us, bearing fruit in sinful actions, which defile us before God, I want us to sit in this list of 13 evidences of wickedness and hold it up as a mirror to our thoughts and our lives. And right away, you'll notice a few things. You'll notice right away that Jesus freely intermingles sins we think of as those we wouldn't dream of committing with sins that we commit every day. And while some are more heinous than others, they all equally defile us before God. And so Jesus mentions adultery and then any sexual immorality as well as lustful thoughts. He mentions theft together with envy and coveting what other people have. He mentions murder along with slandering or talking badly of others. He mentions wickedness along with pride and deceit. And Jesus' point is that all these sins spring from our own desires. In other words, all these things are in us. They're not out there. They are in here. In other words, our defilement before God is not a matter of mistakes we make. Maybe, maybe you've been in a car accident before and you say, boy, I sure didn't intend to get in a car accident. That was not my thought at all. It was a mistake. It was an accident. Or maybe you think of forgetting an appointment and you say to someone, I'm sorry I stood you up this morning. That was not my intent or desire. It was a mistake. But Jesus is saying that's not the case with sin. It is not merely a mistake. Our sin comes from within us, from within our heart. And that's the issue. Sin is a problem in ourselves which produces the thoughts attitudes and actions that are sinful and defile us before our God. It's a problem we might mask for a time or in certain ways, but which we have no ability to heal or to address on our own. And so as J.C. Ryle puts it, puts it, how humble we ought to be when we read these verses. How deeply rooted in us is our sin before the righteous and the holy God. And that's Jesus' second point. No careful effort at washing our hands. No careful effort to avoid certain foods or even greater self-control will ever address what is coming from inside of us. And that is what is leaving us guilty before the Lord. So we've seen the things outside of us can't defile us, but the things inside of us absolutely do. And this point that our defilement comes from within, not from without, has a number of significant implications for us 
in our lives. We could take all morning reviewing these implications, but let me consider four of them with you briefly. Here's the first. Jesus' statement that we are not defiled by things outside of us, but within us, means that we are not defiled by the influence of bad friends, a bad environment, or a bad culture around us. Now let's think about this carefully. Wisdom tells us that all those do influence us. And each of those are tools that Satan uses that can hook us and ensnare us in sin. So we need to be aware of them. We often need to avoid them. But they are never the root of the problem. The culture's lies or bad friends corrupt us because they find an echo in our own heart, which willingly leads us to our sin. The blame always comes back for sin within us, not on things outside of us. You know, we think about our culture and we think about all the terrible influences that are around us. Well, let's turn back to J.C. Ryle, who was writing in 1857, so it's well over 150 years ago, and he had this caution for parents. He said, bad companions are a great evil, no doubt, and an evil to be avoided as much as possible. But no bad companion teaches a boy or girl half so much sin as their own hearts suggest to them, unless they are renewed by the Holy Spirit of God. And so while wisdom calls us to guard against temptation from from the culture, from those around us, remember that we can never lay the blame at their door. Sin comes from our hearts. And that must be the focus of our attention and the focus of our prayers. And so for each one of us, for ourselves, for, for parents, for your children, grandparents, for your grandchildren, there are many ways for you to be praying But the root of your prayers must be for their hearts to be converted by the Spirit of God. Because that is the only hope that they have for redemption and rescue and salvation. So that's implication number one. Second implication is this. Jesus' statement means that we are not defiled by what other people do to us. Think about how easy it is for us to blame our sin on people around us. We say things like, I know I shouldn't have gotten angry, but did you see what he did to me? Or we say, I'm sorry, I'm not usually like this. You pick up what we're saying there, right? But my work has just been terrible to me lately, and so I'm tired and grumpy. Or or we say, I know I was wrong, but if you knew what it was like in my family... Now, I don't, don't want to diminish for a second the wrongs that are done to us. We live in a broken world, and so each of us will be sinned against regularly. But that is not the cause of our sin. And we can never lay the blame for our sinful response, which comes from within us, on what others have done to us. Now, if I can, if I can just pause for a second there and say, some of you might be thinking, well, yes, that, that makes sense when people get angry at me, but if you knew the deep evil that was done against me, maybe we're talking about abuse or, or rape or oppressive marriages, and we should never deny the impact of those evils against us in the way that it impacts us. And while we acknowledge the hurt and the harm of what has happened to us, we still have to say, That does not cause us to sin. 
We cannot lay the blame for our sin on what has happened to us. And, and I think the, the clearest reminder for us is to remember that Jesus was wronged in the most heinous ways. And yet he responded without sin. Which tells us that the source of our sinful response is within us. And so while we need to have great compassion and understanding on those who have been greatly sinned against, we need to remember we cannot lay the blame for our sinful responses on that. But let me move then to a third implication, thinking about those who have been deeply sinned against. If you are those who have suffered deep evil, The fact that nothing outside of us can defile us is a truth that brings great freedom and hope. For it means that while we absolutely recognize the impact of what we have endured and while we pursue counseling and help for for healing, the evils done to us do not define us. They don't define us. Nothing that anyone else has done to us can defile us before God. Now we may feel deep shame and disgrace because of something that has been done to us or is associated with us. But nothing outside of us defiles us before the Lord. And the hope is that as we look to Christ and rest in Him by faith, no matter what has been done to us, we hear His eternal voice speaking to us, accepting us as pure in His sight, beloved of Him if we have come through His Son. And so the great hope that we have in Jesus' words is that they free us from shame that comes from what has been done to us and they welcome us into his love and give us a solid foundation for true hope. See, if we blame all of our problems on what has been done to us, we will only mask the real problem and actually confine ourselves to a place where there is no hope. But realize that what has been done to us does not defile us. And Christ has died. And as we look to him, we hear his voice accepting us. And we have true hope for our steps forward. These are three implications of this passage. But really, they're all leading to the fourth implication of Jesus' statement. And that is this. That what every one of us needs more than anything else is heart change. You know, there are many things people will do to try to improve their life. I've, I've often heard people say things like, you know, I'm really struggling with life right now, but if I can just change schools, everything will be okay. Or if I can just get a new job, or if, if I can just get out from living with my parents, all will be better. Now, again, I want to be careful and clear here, because some of these might be very wise and very good changes. Some of you should look to make some of these changes. There may be oppressive or damaging situations we should leave, but changing our circumstances can never be the center of our hope because it will never address the root of a problem. And the central problem is this. No matter what situations we change in life and wherever we go, we go with ourselves. And if the source of defilement is within us, then the root of the problem will not be addressed. Other times... We put all of our eggs in the basket of of counseling or medication or working harder. And again, counseling, medication, and hard work are all good and maybe necessary. But none of them are sufficient to address the root of the problem. Because by themselves, they can make us higher functioning, more present, more socially adept sinners. 
And as a result, they are not addressing the core of our lives, our sin and our defilement before God that it produces. On their own, each of these things is like taking an ibuprofen. Ibuprofen is good. It is, it is useful. But it's like taking it for temporary help when what we really need is a heart surgery. A number of years ago, I was, I was thinking about this example. Kate's parents had an exchange student who spent the year with them. And I remember it was around Thanksgiving time. And the exchange student asked to help make the pumpkin pies. And this uh, exchange student was decent at, at English. And she did a, a good job at the pies with just one problem. She forgot all the sugar. And as you might know, pumpkin is fairly bitter, and so the result was not very good. Now, my mother-in-law tried to make up for the problem. She added a a very healthy layer of brown sugar on top of the pie uh, to try to compensate. But of course, it didn't work. You just tasted a sickeningly sweet bite and then a terribly bitter bite afterwards. Because a pie can't just have sugar on top. You have to have sugar in the batter itself. And the same is true for us in life. We're very good at living respectable lives, maybe working harder to develop self-control, to become more successful at this, to curb this bad habit, to give money to charity, to become involved in other people's lives and service projects. We, we can do this. We, we focus on this external thing here and there. and All of these things may be good, but it's all sugar on top. And none of it can change the batter that is the source of our defilement before God. But there's glorious news for us because God tells us all across Scripture that His plan for His people is heart surgery. Jeremiah chapter 24 verse 7, after talking about the sins of God's people, God promises, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, after again talking about the predicament of God's people, God comes and promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my commandments. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Hebrews 10, 22, Through the blood of Christ, our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And we could go on and on because this is what God has done. He is a God of heart surgery. And that surgery is possible through the work of Jesus Christ. He came and lived the perfect life in our place that His righteousness might be counted to us. He went to the cross, dying the death we deserved, taking the punishment for our sins so that all the blackness of evil thoughts and evil actions and evil responses that defile us are laid on Him and are wiped clean in the blood of the Lamb. He rose again and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God who gave him the authority to send his spirit to live within us and to give us this surgery that we so desperately needed. That is the great good news of the gospel. And if that's true, if these implications are true, but these promises are true, where do we go from here? 
Obviously, our first step is to cry out to Jesus Christ. He is the one who can wash us in his blood and bring us near to God. He is the one standing with open arms to welcome us and receive us if we come to him in repentance and faith. And so if you have never done so before, come to Christ and find the surgery for our hearts and the hope that we need. And and if you have come to Christ, then certainly a text like this should only remind us of what a great Savior we have. Because a text like this reminds us of the depth of our sin and that the depth and the source of our defilement is in here, in our hearts, that we have no hope to fix it on our own. And yet Christ has met that need on the cross. And that should make us cry out in worship and thanksgiving and praise to Him. Ryle again puts it this way. He says, how thankful we ought to be for the gospel when we read this passage. The man who does not read it and glory in this gospel can surely know little of the plague that is within him. But having come to Christ and having gloried in worship of Christ, my final encouragement this morning is look to the Holy Spirit that is within you. Of course, our our own natures still bear something of the inclinations of our inborn sin, but the Holy Spirit, if we have put our trust in Christ, has made us His home. He is within us. He has made us new, and He is the one that produces new fruit in our lives. If if sexual immorality and, and coveting and slander and pride and the evil thoughts springing up are from our sinful nature, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control are the fruits of the Spirit of God changing our insides. And so cry out to the Spirit. Cry out to the Spirit to be at work in us. Stay in step with the Spirit by being in his word and communing with him in prayer. And as we do so, the the thoughts that will be presented to our minds and the attitudes and actions that flow from it will no longer be ones that defile us, but they will stand as true righteousness before him because they are produced by his spirit at work within us. Righteousness from within us by the work of his spirit Born out with our feet and our hands and our wealth and our lives. Used for the glory and the praise of God. That's the result of heart surgery and the Holy Spirit making his home in us to the praise of his name. And let's pray. Father, as Tim Keller is known for saying, this passage reminds us that we are far worse than we had dared to know. And yet, God through Jesus Christ has loved us and given us a hope that is far greater than we could have dared to dream. Father, would you give us a clear vision this week that our temptations to run from the wisdom of God's word our temptations and desires to please ourselves rather than God, those are from within us, from our sinful nature. And they do separate us from God. Give us that clarity of understanding. But then, Father, give us a true and a clear understanding of Christ 
who died in our place for us, taking our punishment, giving us his righteousness, and then sending his spirit to change our hearts, to create us anew, that the fruit of the spirit might be genuine and true righteousness before you. We ask that you would do that in us for the praise of your name. We pray it through Christ Jesus. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.